You ever find yourself doubting what's possible? Who doesn't, right? Sometimes we think, well, that's possible, but eh, I doubt it. Here's, you don't do that? You don't? Am I the only one? That's possible, right? We say, well, it's possible, but I, I doubt it. It's like summer? Yeah, it's possible. But, you know, right? Well, no, we don't doubt it, do we? No, no, no. Here's, um, Here's a little story that's been told that gives an idea of how easy it is to find ourselves doubting the possible. It was it was on Thanksgiving several years ago that Helen Hayes cooked her first turkey before serving it. She announced to her husband, Charles, and their son, James, Now, now I know this is the first turkey I've ever cooked. If it isn't right, I don't want anybody to say a word. We'll just get up from the table and without comment and, and go down to the hotel for dinner. Then she retired to the kitchen, and when she entered the dining room, bearing the turkey, she found her husband and son seated at the table, wearing their hats and coats. <laughs> You're making a turkey? It could, it could be good, but I, I doubt it, right? That's, you ever find yourself doing that? Ever catch yourself like that, failing to trust even willfully doubting the possible. Do you know what willful doubt is? It's ignoring what's possible. Even worse, it's ignoring what's likely. Choosing doubt over belief. Choosing doubt even over faith. Do you know that willful doubt is a sly killer of faith? You know that willful doubt will kill your belief in the truth of God's Word? Do you realize that we're all prone to willful doubt at times? Do you realize that we're all there? In our old nature especially, we're all still struggling with willful doubt at times, and we doubt what God's gracious work can do in our hearts. We're all prone to that. So, So here's... Here's the question, how can we overcome that? How can we overcome willful doubt? How can we defeat doubt and in its place find faith and trust? If you have your Bible, let's go together to John chapter 9. Would you go with me to John chapter 9? And we're beginning in verse 13 this morning. We're going to see in the account here that though all the signs point to Christ being the very Son of God, God in human flesh, There were some Pharisees who persist in willful doubt, willful unbelief. We've noted before the Apostle John's purpose in writing this gospel. Remember where it is. Don't go there. Just listen. We've seen it in John chapter 20 and verse 31 where he says, These are written. Many more occurred, but these were written, he says, in this gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Many things Jesus has done. Many things Jesus did. Many signs and wonders. Many things He performed. But these, says the Apostle John in verse 31 of chapter 20, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Listen. 
God moved John. We, we call that, this the inspiration of the, of the scriptures. God moved John. God inspired John to write this gospel so that the people of his day and the people of our day would see the signs shown here in this gospel about Jesus Christ and not doubt, but believe that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus is the Messiah, He is God in human flesh, and that seeing, the seeing these things, that we would believe, and that believing, we'd have life. You see how important belief is? You see how important faith is and how, and how deadly doubt can be? We saw the miracle in our study last week as we come back to chapter 9. We saw this miracle. Jesus had given sight to the man born blind. That's incredible, isn't it? A man who had never had sight before has sight now, as we saw in the account we began last week. And we see in this account before us this morning that the people take the man to the Pharisees for answers. They're just a little confused. This is an incredible miracle. They've, they've done a preliminary investigation of their own, and still they're stunned by this incredible miracle that a man that's never had sight before can now see Surely the religious leaders ought to have something to say about this. It's kind of like in our country. When something big is happening somewhere in the world, we go, isn't the president going to say something about this? Right? Isn't he going to say, shouldn't our leaders say something about this? Shouldn't they have an opinion and, and kind of give us some direction? And, and so this is what's happening here. Surely these religious leaders ought to have something to say about this. Surely they can help us understand how this can be a man born blind now has sight? This is an incredible miracle. Please explain. But sadly, instead of clear answers, what they witness are clouded, doubt-filled investigations. There's an investigation that takes place here, and it's it's truly clouded by the doubt of these Pharisees, and it's willful doubt we see going on, on here. It's a, it's a doubt-filled investigation that leads to doubt-filled conclusions. Let's look at verses 13 to 16 and note that, and, and note this because it's true of us. When we, when we get here, when we do this, willfully doubting the work of God will make you unreasonable, will make you proud, it will make you suspicious. It will make you distrustful. We see those things going on here, beginning in verse 13, where it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And the people, think about this, the people who had brought him here, it's the people we saw in last week's passage leading up to this, the people brought him to the Pharisees, his, his neighbors and those people that had seen him begging. They're the ones who had questioned him earlier. Now, why did they take him to the Pharisees? Well, because... The Pharisees were the trusted religious leaders. They were the ones that were supposed to have the answers. They were supposed to be the ones to tell us what's going on here and make things clear. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And here's the first mention of a real problem for the Pharisees. When you read Sabbath day, you can... You can bring in the scary music. You know, the, the, when you're watching a movie and the and the music kicks in, you go, "Uh oh, something bad's going to happen." That's what happens when you see that. When you see Sabbath day, uh oh, something bad's going to happen. And sure enough, here's the first mention of a real problem for the Pharisees. 
Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath? What was he thinking? What Jesus, you know that these Pharisees are going to have a problem with this. Why did you do this? Why did you why couldn't you just, you know, wait till the next day? Jesus is always doing that, isn't he? You know, he does that to us too. He kind of pokes us where we need to be poked. <laughs> right? He kind of gets in our face where we need somebody to stand in our in our face and say, Wait a minute, buddy, that's not right. Here's the first no no. There'd been no there there'd be no healing on the Sabbath. According to the legalistic Sabbath prohibitions set up by the Pharisees, and I want you to note this, these, these prohibitions, these Sabbath prohibitions are not God's. These are the Pharisees making, okay? These are man's rules, not God's rules. And according to the Sabbath prohibitions put in place by the Pharisees, you could only help with an emergency medical situation. If there was somebody who was really in bad shape medically, then you could give them a little bit of help. But don't help them too much. You just got to keep them, you know, live, breathing until the next day, okay? It almost sounds silly, doesn't it? It's ridiculous, right? And that, that was some of these Sabbath prohibitions. You couldn't work. And they had like 39, I think, different prohibitions about, you know, classifications of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath day that were qualified as work. And this was one of them. No healing. No, you know, no applying too much medicine, just help a little bit with the pain and, you know, just help with a little bit of relief until the next day. No healing on the Sabbath was allowed. So imagine, imagine your child breaks his arm on the Sabbath, right? And the bone needs to be set. Not allowed to do that. Not allowed to do that. Just kind of get him comfortable if you can possibly be comfortable and wait for the next day. Can you imagine there's probably going to be more damage the next day than, than, than performing this work that needed to be done on the Sabbath seems kind of silly, doesn't it? So when the Pharisees learned that this man had received his sight on the Sabbath, cue the music, right? There's some, there's some, there's a doubt, doubt-filled hearts come to this investigation. These Pharisees, with their doubt in, in tow, come with this investigation. Remember, this is not the first encounter of these religious leaders with Jesus, and their doubt leads only to them showing their true colors here showing really their true heart. They are unreasonable. They are proud. They're suspicious. They're distrustful. And that's where willful doubt will take you. Verse 15 says, So the Pharisees again asked him how how he received his sight. They want to know how this happened. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and, and washed, and I see. Cue the music again. No doubt the man was happy to give a full report. You would too, right? I mean, come on. No sight at all in your lifetime, and now you can see? You're going to tell anybody who asks, what happened? Here, sit down. Let me tell you. I'll tell you the whole story. No, no doubt he told him the whole story. I think, I think it's probably condensed for our sake here by the Apostle John, but he probably told him everything. Gave him the full report about how Jesus had spit and, and made mud and put it on his eyes and told him to go wash at the pool of Siloam. But remember, there were the Sabbath prohibitions, right? Some 39 different types of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. So you couldn't work on the Sabbath. You couldn't, here's one of them, you couldn't knead bread on the Sabbath. You couldn't knead dough. And, and I'm, we don't know this, but I'm guessing they, they may have considered that he took that mud and saliva and kneaded on the Sabbath. So no, that's a no-no. You can't need that. And, and there also was this belief at the time that saliva had a medicinal 
value to it. It had healing properties to it. And they would put saliva on wounds. And I wonder how long it took for them to get over that. But, you know, that doesn't seem to work for us, is it? So, I mean, think of all these. They're kind of like, well, there's one. That, that was a no-no. And that, there's one. And they're kind of counting up the violations of the Sabbath prohibition. So it's likely these unreasonable, proud, suspicious, and distrustful Pharisees are just kind of going, there's another strike, you know, strike two, strike three, buddy, and you're, you know, you're out. And note something here, they they probably aren't meeting on the Sabbath, they're probably meeting on the next day because they wouldn't have convened their little meeting on the Sabbath, that would have been a prohibition, so they probably waited the next day when they gathered. But they, they want some reason here, and we, we know this, we've seen this before, they want some reason to accuse Jesus of wrong, don't they? They want to they want to be able to accuse him of of some sin, of some wrong, some violation. But again, these aren't God's commands, are they? These are man's rules. These Sabbath prohibitions. So what do we do? What does Jesus do? Well the Pharisee the Pharisees have their regulations, but they're not they're not Jesus' regulations, are they? They're not God's. And Jesus represents God, right? He's, he's, Jesus is in the flesh God's representation of himself to us. And, and so he's not going to be kowtowed to some, you know, weak, man-made, legalistic demands. When he sees there's a need and the Father sent him to, to help, you know, to, to relieve this need, he's going to do something. These aren't God's commands. The Pharisees had all these rules for keeping the Sabbath. And all the while, think about this, they're ignoring that what Jesus had done was simply an act of mercy. Simply showing mercy to a, to a man born blind. For these Pharisees forget that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, forget that instead of doubting and accusing, they should have been praising God at this wonderful miracle. No, no, they, they said, you know, look, we're, we're just a little more concerned with the violation of our rules. How dare you violate our rules? But willful doubt leads to pride. Note their pride. Look at verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. How dare you violate our rules, right? But others said, uh-oh, they're a little confused. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they're divided about which way to go on this. Wait, yeah, he violated the Sabbath rules, but, but this is incredible. How could a, a sinner do something like that? But they've got these pride-filled hearts. They can't possibly allow for any belief to crowd in. And, you know, don't confuse me with the facts, all right? That's what they were saying, basically. Don't confuse me with the truth. Forget the purpose for which Jesus had done this work as he violated their rules. He can't be from God. How proud of them. He can't be from God. We, we just know it. We've made up our minds. They say, these weren't God's rules, were they? How proud is that? Note too note here how willful doubt makes us unreasonable. These Pharisees, so unreasonable. Some of them evidently are second-guessing what they believe. 
They're divided. It doesn't make sense that a sinner could do such a miraculous thing as give sight to a man born blind. We've never heard of a thing like this. Look at verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, He's a prophet. He is a prophet. And here's a wonderful lesson for us. How do you deal with doubt? How do you deal with that? Well, for one, you believe the plain evidence, right? You, you believe the clear truth. Instead of leaning on your preconceived ideas like these Pharisees were doing, you believe the evidence. They refuse to believe the evidence. Believe the evidence. That's what this man who can now see was doing. He's just simply believing what he sees, right? Literally, he says, I've got sight now. They couldn't even call Jesus by by name here. Look at it. The Pharisees asked for for his opinion about him. You know, tell us about him. Earlier they had said this man back in verse 16. They didn't want to say his name. The man with sight says, "Well, uh, let's see. Uh, based on the fact that I was, uh, you know, like uh, born blind, uh, now I see. My only conclusion is that he's got to be a prophet. He's got to be somebody with power." For the Pharisees, that answer will not do, will it? So they call for the parents, and note as we look at verses 18 to 23 that willfully doubting the work of God makes you unmovable. Willfully doubting the work of God makes you uncontrollable, stubborn, incurable, obstinate, all those things, any any others you can think of. It it makes you stubborn. You will not be moved. We see here here more doubt-filled investigation that leads to more doubt-filled conclusions. Verses 18 and 19 say, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he received his sight until, they wouldn't take his testimony, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Well, first, they don't want to believe that this is, you know, certainly maybe this was a mistaken identity. Let's identify, is this your son? So they listen to the man's testimony, but that wasn't enough. They send him away. They're, they're very stubborn. They're unmovable. They're obstinate in their, in their willful doubt. Only when they ask the parents do they believe he was really born blind, that this truly is their son, and he has been without without sight for his whole life. I mean, you could kind of see their reasoning. Maybe they're thinking, maybe he wasn't actually born blind. Maybe he just can't ever remember ever seeing. You know? Like, you know, I don't remember being born, but I know I was, right? So maybe he, you know, didn't have, maybe he had his sight when he was born. He lost it somewhere. He just never remembered seeing. Verses 20 and following, his parents answered, we know that this is our son. And that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And then John helps us here because this seems peculiar. How come his parents wouldn't know? Well, John says, of course, they knew. You know, they probably knew what was going on. But here's why they said it. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, one of the reasons they probably didn't want to even say his name, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Verse 23, therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him.
So before the investigation had begun, the Pharisees had already made up their mind about Jesus. You can see it in verse 22. The parents were afraid to admit that they did know how their son now sees. They'd likely heard the whole story from him more than once. They probably did know who, who performed this miracle. Who did open his eyes. Why? Why are they afraid? Because the word had been put out. The word on the street was that you confess Jesus to be Christ and will excommunicate you from the synagogue. And that was a serious challenge. That was a serious threat. It would mean being cut off of the social life of Israel. Being, I mean, everything happened in the synagogue. You'd be cut off from the social life religiously, economically, socially, no friends, no, no business dealings, no religious dealings. You're done, kaput, out. So the answers the parents give are safe. They will not even support their son. Kind of a little picture here about why he was probably begging. They, they wouldn't stand with his son, their son and support him. They probably weren't even helping him survive at this point. But interestingly, the answers still point to the truth. Even though they're not saying the whole truth, the answers they give still point to the truth that this miracle did occur. He was born blind. Indeed, he has been without sight his entire life. We know it. That is our son. But how he received his sight, who, we don't know, who did this, which certainly likely wasn't true. Now, look at what follows in verses 24 to 34 and note that willfully doubting the work of God makes you irrational, makes you uncorrectable, unteachable. It will make you even scornful and cruel. We see all those things going on here. The doubt-filled investigation of this blind man continues with, guess what? More doubt-filled conclusions. The Pharisees called the man back for more questioning. They, they were not done. What else was there to know? Verse 24, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. How, if, I mean, just think about this, how irrational of the Pharisees to continue in their refusal to believe the simple testimony of this poor man. And to just follow through and listen to what his parents said. Yes, he's our son. Yes, we know he's been born blind from birth. But all they can hope as they call him back for their second questioning, is that he'll slip up in some way, and his story, maybe his story will change. And when they say, you, you noted that, give glory to God, they don't mean glorify God. They don't mean give God the glory. What they're saying here is speak the truth before God. You're on your honor here, buddy. Speak the truth before God. And their minds are made up, of course. They don't care what his answer is. They, they, they already have their minds fixed on an answer they want to hear. They say, we know that this man is a sinner. You admit it. There's no way he did this. Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Are those precious words or what? You think about how, how those truths line up with your life and mine before and after Christ. One thing I do know, before Christ came into my life, I was a dirty, rotten, blind, stuck-in-my-sin scoundrel. 
And now with Christ, I'm still a scoundrel, but I'm no longer stuck in my sin. And Jesus is making me new, right? I still struggle with sin, but, but Jesus has forgiven me. And He paid the price for all those sins in my past. He paid the price for the sin today and the sin tomorrow that I'm trying to kill with the power of the Spirit and the Word. Once I was blind and now I see. How precious is that? How do you deal with doubt? How do you deal with doubt? You believe the clear evidence, right? You believe what's right there in front of your face. That's all this man is doing. I, I, I can't say whether he's a sinner or not, but I, but I can say I was blind and now I see. But the Pharisees, they are so obstinate, right? They will not be corrected. Never mind the fact that you can see now. It's almost silly. Never mind that you can see now is essentially what they're saying. Look at verses 26 and 27. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? You, you, you get the idea that he's messing with them now. I kind of, I kind of get that. Oh, 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 now I know why you're asking me again. You want to become followers of him. Is that it? He knows better. They don't take kindly to that either. So fixed in their unbelief, they treat him with scornful cruelty here. Look at verses 28 and 29. And they reviled him, saying, You. Are a disciple, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, still won't use his name. As for this man, we do not know where he comes from. In other words, you, you are such a simpleton, you obviously don't know the truth. We know the truth. You're an ignoramus. I mean, they're just being, that's essentially what they're saying to him. Scornful cruelty in his face. You, you, you know nothing. Because we're Moses' disciples. And, and guess what? He brought the law. And guess who gave him the law? God gave him the law. And, and see the connection here? Connect the dots, buddy. God, Moses, law, Pharisees. That's us. Okay? And, and not only that, we've improved on the law. We've even made it better. We've got all these regulations and rules of our own that have improved and enhanced. Remember, God, Moses, law, Pharisees, right? And we've got rules. So we call this poor man a know-nothing. Jesus had told them many times before where he was from, right? And so they're even lying to his face but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. That wasn't true. That's irrational, uncorrectable, willful doubt. And the man sees that. It's interesting. This simpleton, he sees right through them. Verse 30, why, this is, am- this is an amazing thing, he says. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet, get this, he opened my eyes. Remember, I was blind. This was like saying, 
You know, there's only one thing more incredible than, than a man born blind receiving his sight. And what's more incredible is that you don't believe it. They were irrational. They were uncorrectable. They were willful doubters. And then he proceeds to give them a lesson in theology, this, this simpleton. He schools them quite well. He Look at verses 31 through 33. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man is so puzzled. He's so perplexed by their unbelief. He simply lays out the truth for them as he sees it, and he sees it pretty clearly, no pun intended. And again, their irrational thinking and behavior is is clear as they heap their scornful cruelty on him. Verse 34, look at how they respond. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And he did the very thing his parents feared. They cast him out of the synagogue. In other words, this is interesting. In other words, they admit the miracle. When they say, do you see it there? When they say, you were born in utter sin, what are they pointing to? They were, they were pointing to the fact that he was born blind. Remember the discussion the disciples had with Jesus at the beginning of chapter 9? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The Pharisees say, you were born in utter sin. You're being punished with your, you were being punished with your blindness by, by some sin of yours or your parents. You were born in utter sin. So in effect, they admit, yeah, okay, he was born blind. You see how foolish they are in their willful doubt, their willful unbelief, denying the facts. That's what willful doubt does to you. It takes the it takes the facts and and throws them out with the rubbish, right? You, you refuse to believe what you see. What was their problem? What was their problem, the Pharisees? And what was what's our problem? Truly, this is our problem too. What's what's our trouble when we doubt? What was their trouble when they were doubting? The problem. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 is, is this. It's that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The natural person. That's, that's the person who's an unbeliever, but, but the believers can still struggle with the old man, the natural person, right? For they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the person without Christ is so inclined to doubt that without the grace of God moving into their lives and opening their eyes spiritually, they will not believe. They will look the facts in the face and deny the truth. And certainly we can be like this if we don't know Christ. And if you don't know Christ today, you could be doing this right now, listening to the truth, hearing the facts, and denying them, willfully doubting, and we can still, even if we are Christ, we can still struggle with this. Pastor and author Paul Tripp points to our problem, I think, very clearly this way. He says, one of sin's greatest rebellions 
is our repeated refusal to listen and submit to the wisdom of God revealed on every page of his word. Don't we do that sometimes? We say, well, I want to do what God wants. I want to honor God. I want to do his will. And and yet we won't even open the word. Or if we do, we, we skim over it and say, well, that was, you know, that was helpful. I got that out of the way for the day. And now on to other things for the next 18 hours. All right? One of sin's greatest rebellions is our repeated refusal to listen and submit to the wisdom of God revealed on every page of his word. J.C. Ryle writes and says it this way, The state of mind we should always desire to possess is that of the, of the noble-minded Bereans. When they first heard the Apostle Paul preach, they listened with attention, they received the word with all readiness of mind. They searched the scriptures and compared what they heard with God's word. And therefore, we are told, many of them believed. Happy, he says, are those who go and do likewise. And happy you'll be if you stop doubting and start believing. Start obeying the simple truths of God's Word. Every page of the Bible is to direct our thinking and change our our thinking and move us from being doubters to believers, from being willful doubters to being faith-filled followers of Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came to do what? He came to save sinners. He came to accomplish what we could not do for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves from our sins. So, so unbeliever today, if you're an unbeliever, stop doubting. Start believing the evidence. And believer in Christ, lean on the Spirit. Lean on what Jesus Christ has already accomplished for you. You cannot accomplish anything more for yourself Simple obedience is what God requires. Simple faith. Lean on the Spirit of God at work in you with the Word of God as you search the Scriptures and submit yourself to His truth. And that's daily, simple steps of obedience, isn't it? Moving from being doubters to faithful followers of Christ, those who have faith, who believe, what powerful truths God's Word holds for us and how convicting it is when we come and we see guys like these rascal Pharisees and we go, I'm not like that. I guess I am like that, aren't we? We struggle with our own doubt. But God says, believe my Word, believe my promises, follow my instruction, be faithful. I've already accomplished what needs to be done. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. Even though I've just given it to you, you can't, you can't do anything to pay me back. But do, do obey me. Do honor me. Do believe me. Do trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths, the power of these truths in our lives when we simply trust, when we simply take steps of obedience not by our own might, but by your power, by your power at work in us as followers of Christ. 
by the power of the Spirit and the Word, help us to yield to you and stop doubting. And when doubt creeps in and we start to fear, God, help us to rest on your promises and to take another step of obedience. And God, I pray, are there unbelievers here today, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts and minds to hear and see the truth and stop doubting and start believing. Draw them to yourself, Lord. Help them to realize their need of repentance, to, to turn from their sin and, and to give their sin to you, to be forgiven of those sins and to receive eternal life. Help them to see that need for their own humility before you, the trust in you, belief, faith, and not doubt. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.